Welcome to Jobs with Jody, a podcast produced by the National Peace Corps Association's Global Reentry Program, aimed at addressing career topics of interest to the returned Peace Corps volunteer community. I'm your host, Jody Hammer, Career Services Specialist with the NPCA's Global Reentry Program. Thank you so much for joining me today for our monthly conversations with RPCV Leaders in Action series. And today I'm just, I have the privilege of chatting with RPCV Jody Glickman, another Jody in the house, same spelling as well, um, to make it a little more confusing. But uh, Jody, in addition to being an RPCV, having served in Chile, she's a very accomplished uh, CEO, keynote, uh, a TEDxer. I shared one of the uh, one of the, the TEDx um, talk that she had in advance for you to be able to watch it. Hopefully, on um, you know before we started in this in this conversation today, Harvard business writer. She's a LinkedIn learning instructor, entrepreneur, author. I could go on and on. There are so many great roles that you've um, that you've held, uh, Jody, and I'm just excited to to hear more um, about that. Um, your you know your experience as a former Peace Corps volunteer, then turned investment banker. We'll talk about that a little bit later turned communication expert I mean you've worked in the gamut and and it's clear you know your passion about developing leaders um, you know seasoned executives next generation talent that's a lot of I think what you do in your CEO as you know and founder of your um, great on the job your organization so we want to hear all about all of those things and I really want to allow you I as I said I could go on forever but I want to go ahead and um, get started and allow you to maybe add a little more information in addition to the brief bio, you know, stats that I've, you know, shared for you as well. Um, so if you can maybe start it off by just telling us a little more about yourself and your background to complement what I've shared. I'm sure. Well, thank you, Jody. Thank you so much for having me today. It is so fun to be here and such an honor. I have an unbelievable special, an unbelievably special place in my heart for the Peace Corps. And it is um, it's far away from what I do now. So it feels really nice to reconnect. It, it, it was an absolutely transformative part of my life. Um, but today, what I do is I'm the founder and CEO of Great on the Job, which is a leadership development and communication training firm. And I pretty much spend all of my time developing talent, helping people at both the senior level and, and sort of in rising ranks across corporate America and across academia communicate strategically, effectively, persuasively every single day in every situation, whether they are on top of their game or just starting out and don't know what they're doing. And I sort of fell into this career. It wasn't, I, I can't say it was the most, um, it wasn't the most intentional. I was uh-huh arm twisted into starting my own company. And I was arm twisted into starting my own company by my husband, who is someone who is a brilliant creative thinker, but who struggled to communicate in a professional setting at work. And so the genesis of sort of my switch from finance and, um, and policy and what I was doing before great on the job was that he used to look at me while I was working 24 seven as an investment banker and say, you should really teach people how to communicate, Jody. And I was like, you know, whatever. That's that's just what I do. Eric. Like, I, I don't know. That's just how I talk. And he persisted and persisted and persisted and said, no, no, no. Like, I really learn a lot listening from you at work. And so he put together a business plan, sort of um, ideating the idea of this business. And we started working on it together. And, and one thing led to another. And there was a lot of luck. 
and some and some skill along the way. And, and today I'm, as you said, I'm very passionate about what I do and I feel really lucky to love what I do, but that was not always the case. And that is a hard thing to find. And I, and I don't recommend people search out their passion because I find that way too intimidating of advice. Wow, great. Well, that's interesting because, you know, many of our RPCBs have dreams of becoming an entrepreneur, right? Like that's, that's what they would love to do if they could do anything. And they they spend time working toward that. And then, you know, taking that leap is that that difficult part. And so it's interesting to hear from you, the opposite where, you know, I have this vision of, you know, your, your husband, like pushing you to the, to the cliff. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. I liked, I actually liked having a job. I thought it was pretty great to get a paycheck and to have an assistant and to travel all around the world. And um, yeah, no, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for the entrepreneurial path. Uh, I do love it now and I appreciate it, but it is certainly not, you know, when I talk to my friends who are entrepreneurs, like it's not the sexiest thing in the world when you're running the business day to day, there is a, there is a major that is hard to do. Um, and the idea that you have to sort of, you know, bring in your own business and eat what you kill as opposed to collecting a paycheck. <laughs> nerve wracking. I will say that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, I can, I can completely, completely see that. Um, and, and it's interesting. It, there, there's such a need, it seems like for what you do, you know, the whole talent coaching or talent, you know, training talent. Right. Yeah. Um, and I know that you've worked with very high level, um, you know, organizations, you know, doing this kind of work. What would you say, um, what have you learned in the process? Um, what would you say are the biggest, biggest things that you find yourself training people on again and again, you know, in the leadership coaching, what's the area that people get stuck on even in these huge organizations? Well, you know, listen, I focus on everything other than your technical skills. So I'm not, I'm not teaching anyone how to do any of the technical aspects of their job. And what sure. I would, what I believe and what I profess and, and speak about and write about and sell to clients ultimately is that technical skills are a commodity. Really and truly technical skills in any industry, in any organization, at any level, at some point they become a check the box skill. We assume you're smart. We live in a global economy where everyone is competitive, everyone is talented, everybody is qualified and ambitious. And yep. yet I would argue that what, what um, differentiates leaders from the pack is their ability to communicate, their ability to build relationships, their ability to um, build trust among their teams and, and really lead others. The communication piece is, is what we focus on. And the challenge that we come up against is that we live in a digital world. And so for all of the young RPCVs on the phone today, I mean, I'm a dinosaur, basically. I'm 47 and I served in the Peace Corps over 20, 20 <laughs> <Got your> beat. <laughs> Over 20 years ago, which just blows my mind. But um, I, listen, I, I didn't grow up with email. I mean, that's like a crazy thing. There was no internet when I was in college. Exactly. But so with social media, with digital technology, with the, with the rate and pace of communication, I just think that young people are growing up without the reps, without the opportunity to engage in live daily one-on-one -on -one conversation. And that is the way that you build relationships. That is the way that you win business. That is the way that you close deals. No one ever got promoted because of a brilliant email. 
No one ever yeah. closed a deal on Wall Street because of a text they sent. I mean, human relationships are at the center of everything we do. And so I think the, the benefit for me from a business perspective is that the, the vast majority of employees and talent base that we see across Fortune 100 firms, across the top tier business schools in this country, um, these communication skills aren't necessarily taught. And I think the, the opportunities to learn are much, are much different. Forget the fact that we're all living in a COVID world right now, you know, living and sure. communicating online. So there's a real need to give young people, especially the opportunities to develop and hone their communication skills, because ultimately you can't succeed in business without them. Yeah, you know, I, I see that so often as well, right? In the, the digital native generation where they're so tied to technology and the phone and all of that, they just don't carry that pen and paper or, you know, to like a notebook to be able to write down notes if they're in with the, you know, executive director. We were just talking about that the other day. And, you know, they're instead putting things in their phone, but then that comes across as if they're not listening and they're focusing on their phone, which is very rude. So it's all of those kinds of things that I think um, are so important. So, so yes, although we may be the, uh, you know, digital non-natives, right, at all. I served from 94 through 97. Um, you know, there's the people skills that are important too, and that communication that, you know, you can really help them with. So and it's not to say that it's a bad thing. It's just, it's a factor of the world that we live in. I think our, you know, young people are incredibly talented and their digital sure. skills are amazing and they've come up with new and innovative ways to disrupt industries and to communicate. But I do believe at the end of the day, there will never be a replacement for live face-to-face -face conversations. And if you've grown up in a world where you haven't had to do that, you know, when I think back to growing up where, you know, we talked to adults our whole lives, we interviewed for jobs in person when the boss needed something face-to-face yep. -face conversation because there was no other way. I just think it becomes more important than ever with every passing year as technology improves. So does the need for human connection. Right. No, that's such a good point. Absolutely. So, um, you know, speaking of your, you know, Peace Corps service and having done it, you know, some time ago, as you said, 20 plus years ago, um, I'm in the same boat, but it feels like yesterday many in many ways. What would you say are the biggest transferable skills that you developed in your service in Chile that have served you well, you know, in your continued, you know, career? Well, I'll give you, I'll, I'll answer that question broadly, but I'll also give you a cute example. When I was interviewing on Wall Street, I remember um, one of the questions, someone said to me, how are you going to handle the hundred hour work weeks? Like, how are you going to handle the relentlessness of this schedule that is nonstop? And I looked at the interviewer and I said, you know, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I was an ambassador of the United States to Chile. I lived in on the plaza in my town and, and they knew what time I went to bed and what time I woke up and they knew who came to visit. Um, I said, I was on 24 seven for two years. There was never a time where I wasn't representing the Peace Corps and the State Department and the United States of America. And they kind of looked at me and were like, oh, okay. Now- What a that great answer. It worked. I, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that it was relevant, but, but the thing is, listen, the Peace Corps, I think when you come back from the Peace Corps, in my mind, I was like, well, I can do anything now. I mean, nothing sure. harder than that. I'll concede that banking was pretty hard. Um, but I just yeah. had this confidence that if I could go to another country and move to a small town in the middle of nowhere with not a single American for hundreds of miles around, that I could probably figure out whatever job someone threw my way. Um, right. 
So for me, it was a sense of confidence. It was a sense of overcoming challenges. I mean, if I think back to how hard it was when I moved to my town and just feeling completely lost and like a fish out of water and what was I doing and then falling in love with my town and my community and my job and never wanting to leave. I just had a sense of, I can do anything, right? The toughest job you'll ever love. I, it's pretty true. That's my favorite slogan of, of Peace Corps, of all the slogans. There have been some great ones, but yeah. the toughest job you'll ever love to me in a nutshell is, is what it, right. What it's all about. It's so tough and so rewarding and everything in between. Yeah. 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 That's, that's great. So let's, um, let's move a little bit. I, I want to hear about this incredible transition, right? Like not, I mean, most people, you know, most people don't go from Peace Corps and then coming back and going to become an investment banker on Wall Street, right? That's just, I, in fact, I think you might be the first I've heard of, right? And I've worked for 12 years in headquarters, working with RPCVs, you know, daily on, you know, doing all kinds of different things. But, but that is quite unique, right? Going, yeah. going from Peace Corps to that. You have several who leave corporate and go to Peace Corps as a way to like put a break on things and then, you know, refocus. Can you tell us about your experience? How did that happen? How yeah. did you make that happen? Because that's not an easy transition. No. Well, I, I will say it's funny because, and I'll have to send this to my good friend, Akbar, who I haven't spoken to in a little while, but he was um, a friend of mine. Uh, Akbar Sharfi was in the Peace Corps with me and he applied to business school from the Peace Corps and was accepted to Harvard Business School. And I remember thinking at the time, like, who gets into Harvard Business School while you're in the Peace Corps applying <laughs> literally no communication um, technology available, but it planted the seed that, that, um, you know, really you could do anything. It wasn't, yep. a, it wasn't a direct link to be fair. I came back from the Peace Corps and I wanted to become, uh, I wanted to do environmental economics, I believe, and get some, you know, a PhD mm -hmm. work at the world bank and stay in international development. Sure. And I landed in DC, um, and I was interviewing for jobs in international development and they were certainly hard to come by. I didn't have a graduate degree. I remember someone at the World Bank saying to me, do you have a graduate degree? And, and I said, uh, I said, no. And he said, how old are you? And I said, you're not allowed to ask that question. And he said, I'm, I'm Italian. I can ask you anything I want. I mean, this was <laughs> World Bank back in the day, right? Um, well, you can, but you're gonna get in trouble for it. Potentially. <laughs> But I recognized that the, 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 um, the world of DC was so competitive in terms of it, um, advanced degrees and how many people wanted to work in international development. And I didn't know if I wanted to spend my life traveling. I, I did at that moment. I just didn't know if I wanted to do it forever. Um, I ultimately talked my way into a job at the Environmental Protection Agency, which was an amazing role. Um, I loved the EPA. I, I, they posted a job, I called about it and they told me they weren't actually interviewing. They probably just had to post it for some legal reason. And I remember I said to the, to the person on the other end of the line, I said, well, if you meet me, you're going to want to hire me. She <laughs> said, well, if you, if you insist, you can come in for an interview. So I flew to DC. I was actually in Chicago. I flew to DC. Oh my gosh. I interviewed and, and she's like, you're great. I want to hire you, but we don't have a position. So I actually stayed in DC and I temped until the ah. position and and why this is relevant is while I was at the EPA, I was working in um, I was working on voluntary partnership programs between business and industry, and we were trying to encourage businesses to be better environmental stewards. And I really loved the work, um, but it occurred there were a couple of realizations. One was that I knew nothing about business and industry, and I thought it was kind of hypocritical to be you know giving advice to big companies right. when I lived 
never worked in the for-profit sector in my life. And the second was, I was really frustrated by my lack of opportunity, both financially and in terms of promotion and advancement, right? You, you sort of move in government pace at like a G level and depending on how many years of service and how much education, you get a small bump up. And I was very ambitious and motivated. And I really felt like I had a ton of value to offer to the marketplace. Right. And I was making, you know, $32,000 or something. And I was just feeling stymied and stifled. And so I kind of pretty quickly had a realization that government wasn't for me long-term. I felt like, I, you know, and, and, I, and it, I don't mean to sound like a jerk. I just felt like, I, you know, I wanted to be running the place, not, you know, this low man on the totem pole at some low G level, um, government level rank. And so I applied to business school and I, and I really felt like, and it was interesting because my whole life, I wanted to get a, a graduate degree in policy. I wanted to work in public policy. I love public policy. It's what I had studied. It was Peace Corps. It was government. Sure. But I just felt a sense of, I think what has driven me my whole life is a sense of impact. And, you know, you go into the Peace Corps and I, I would imagine I went into the Peace Corps thinking I was going to change the world. And I came home from the Peace Corps recognizing I hadn't changed the world. The Peace Corps had changed me for the better. Exactly. There's this hubris, like you're going to change the world. I had an impact on a tiny little town in Southern Chile and it was amazing, but I didn't change the world. And so at, at the EPA, I felt this sense also of lack of impact. I just felt like I couldn't have impact on a level I wanted to. Okay. So I applied to business school and I felt like I need to learn how the world works. I need to learn the private sector and I need to understand finance and marketing and, um, and so that was really, I, I was just frustrated with government and I wanted to have an impact. I wanted sure. to see my work matter. Um, and so I was accepted to business school. I went to Cornell. I had an amazing experience. I never thought about being an investment banker. I wanted to be a management consultant. Sure. I wanted to be Bain or McKinsey or BCG. And I, I crashed and burned in those interviews. Like just, I did those case interviews and I, I remember one guy looking at me and he, in the interview and he goes, well, that didn't go very well. <laughs> he told you that? He told me that in the moment. So here I was a business school student. I actually, I was studying finance because I loved it. I had never come across finance in my undergrad and I was just enthralled. There was this whole tool set that I had never known about that would help you solve problems. So a friend of mine suggested um, interviewing for banking and I kind of thought she was crazy. And then <laughs> the competitive juices just got flowing and I interviewed for with banks and I kind of thought like, this would be amazing. I would be, I would be exposed to really incredible, smart people. I would be working on these big, important deals. I would make a lot of money. And I kind of fell into that, that um, I was wooed by the industry, if you will. And I, um, I don't regret going at all, but it, it, it was, uh, I had a love hate relationship. It was an amazing experience. It certainly helped shape the professional I am today. It is a, it is a um, very taxing environment and I wasn't great at it. That was the truth. I mean, I was sort of, I was pushing uphill for the four years that I was at Goldman Sachs. Four I, years. Wow. Yeah. I, I know in my business school, there were, there were a lot of bets on how long Jody would last in <laughs> it wasn't four years. I'll tell you the other thing as it relates to Peace Corps was I had to reconcile the idea of being quote, a sellout. You know, people looked at me like who goes from the Peace Corps to Wall Street? And I was okay with that. I felt like I had always wanted to change the world and do good, but I, I also had a sense of, um, it was really hard to change the world if you would know money. 
And I, I was coming, I was poor. Like I was coming off I had a lot of student loans, you know, whatever stipend the Peace Corps gave me. And then my low salary, I remember feeling like a sense of, I need to earn money. Like this is just, I need to take control of my future and earn money. And I want to, I want to get into the business world. And then I can go back to government one day and make an impact, which I think about still sometimes from time to time. Um, but that was, it was a series of steps and it was really based on, I, I wanted to have impact and I wanted to, yeah. um, I wanted to really see the fruits of my labor. Yeah, you know, and and that is that's that's important. And I think uh, speaking of you know your your like selling out or your feeling like you know reconciling that feeling of selling out. I know I think you and I have more in common than just our first name being spelled the same in the exact same name because. Uh, I, like you, did actually come back, not corporate uh, Wall Street investment banker, but I came back and, and actually went back to the corporate world very uh, briefly um, after doing Peace Corps. And I had no intention. I went to Peace Corps with like, you know, I was in more of finance. It was, you know, uh, principal financial group, a great organization. I love the company, um, and, but it just wasn't, it wasn't feeding my soul. And, you know, I really needed to do something that was feeding my soul. So did Peace Corps was finishing up and and they connected with me and they said, Hey, we have a great opportunity for you. You know, we need a Spanish speaker, international marketing consultant. You'd be based in, in Des Moines, Iowa, which is where I'm from, you know, Iowa. So I'd see all my family and, you know, have a part in the lives of my nieces and nephews after three years gone, but I'd be jetting off to Chile, Argentina, Mexico, and Spain sounded like fabulous. And so it was a no brainer in a sense. And so I, I jumped into it, but I very soon recognized in my case, it was more with the international finance. What I ended up, what I, my job was more to like work with really rich people in the company, in the, in the countries where I'd served, trying to help the poor, the impoverished, all of that, try to, you know, I don't want to say hide their money, but like, you know, do, you know, invest their money, whatever. It wasn't at all the philosophy, like what I had or the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And I just remember for me, you know, I had to make that difficult decision of like leaving it in less than the year I had committed to a year and I just couldn't, you know, bring myself to, you know, this was the right choice, but it's sometimes those decisions, you know, are difficult, right. And, and going. And so, you know, they work out differently, but it sounds like you got a lot from your investment banker experience and learned what you, you know, liked what you didn't like, and then, you know, went on from there, which is, which is great. So, well, and and I think, you know, to your, to your story and to mine and to everyone who's listening today, who is young and idealistic and excited and, and driven and passionate, there's no perfect. And so I think that right. is, you know, I, I don't mean to squash anyone's dreams, but really and truly every job and every role is a trade-off. And so yep. as you were just talking about international development and living in Iowa and traveling, I'm like, I was jealous. I'm like, that sounds amazing. There's always aspects of a role um, that you're, that hopefully there are some aspects that you love and that you excel at and, and then things you don't. Banking for me was I learned a lot. I really did. And I, I learned so much about client service and that is my business today. And I, yeah. I the reason I over deliver and my clients love me is because I grew up at Goldman Sachs where like no one does it better. And yet, I, you know, I, I, I used to work 14 and 16 hour days and I would cry. And I didn't see any of my friends and my family thought I was crazy. You know, what I always say about Goldman Sachs and frankly about the Peace Corps too is there are similar organizations in that there are very high positives and there are very high negatives, mm-hmm. right? It's not like a run of the mill, just kind of easy peasy thing. I mean, the Peace Corps was so incredible. And yet yep. leaving home for two years was really hard. And I'm so glad I did it when I was young. And when I met my husband, I like made him swear an oath. He would go back with me when we were older. I, I don't know if I can do that now anymore. <laughs> 
but you know, but like you have to make a commitment for two years yeah. and, and the payoff is, is incredible. Um, but that was the way I felt about Goldman Sachs. And I don't know that every job is like that, but I think when you are at certain levels of sort of the elite, like, you know, you can go volunteer with an organization for four weeks and, and work in Latin America or travel to Asia and have an amazing experience. But when you give two right. years of your life, that is uh-huh. transformational. That's the way I think about those organizations and, and some of the common threads. Thank you, Jody. That's that's wonderful. As a reminder, this is Jobs with Jody, a podcast produced by NPCA's Global Reentry Program, serving the RPCV population. Today, I'm joined by RPCV Jody Glickman, CEO and founder of Great on the Job, and she's sharing with us lessons she's learned, um, sharing those with the RPCV job seeker and professionals. So, Jody, you're no stranger to public speaking, and in looking at some of your, you know, videos and such in preparing for this, um, I must say I'm very uh, impressed with your um, stage presence. And uh, I watched your TED Talk, which um, I had shared with folks. Um, I want to talk a little bit about you know two of those because I think that they're so important for RPCVs and they're so relevant. And I would love to, you know, spend a little bit of our limited time, you know, on that. So um, your first, your TED talk, the perfecting the pitch, right? Um, that's definitely one that that Peace Corps, you know, volunteers, RPCVs often struggle with, you know, pitching themselves and their Peace Corps service in particular, right? It's like, how is this going to make me more you know, um, and, and so they, they struggle with that. So I'd love for you to start with just sharing a little bit more about your uh, that particular, you know, TED talk. And then, um, yeah, we'll go from there. Thanks. Um, so just minor notes. So that's actually not a TED talk. It's a, it's a course on LinkedIn learning, but happy to speak to it. So I have a course on LinkedIn learning called Perfecting Your Pitch, and it has really oh, resonated. Gotcha. It has resonated with a, a global audience and, and especially now more so than ever during times of COVID. Um, And what I say about the pitch is that 99% of the time when you meet someone and they introduce you or you introduce yourself, um, what people start talking about when they talk about themselves is their background, right? They tell you where they're from, where they went to school, what they've been doing for the last three or five or seven years. And with all due respect, no one really cares about your background. (laughs) Let's just be clear, right? They really don't. What people are interested in is what you're doing going forward, what you're excited about today, what you're hoping to achieve in the next, you know, three, six, nine months. And so this idea of pitching yourself takes the idea of a quote elevator pitch or a personal pitch and it turns it on its head. It says when you introduce yourself, when you start a conversation, when you're pitching for a job or networking or just literally starting a call with a client, um, you don't want to start with your background. You don't want to start by looking backward. You want to start by looking forward. You want to start by telling me what you're interested in, what you're excited about, what you're hoping to do and accomplish and achieve. And that really for job seekers can be game changing. And I think for return Peace Corps volunteers can be game changing because oftentimes what we do, especially coming from an organization like the Peace Corps, is you're trying to fit together this puzzle of what you did in the past and why it's relevant to what you want to do in the future. And oftentimes the two have nothing to do with each other, i.e. Peace Corps to investment banking. There's no correlation. And so... When you are when you are quote pitching yourself, it's much more interesting, compelling, and impactful to start by looking forward and by focusing on the future. 
And then you go after you lead with your destination, then and only get then do you go to your backstory and let someone know that actually I served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Latin America. And that's so interesting because I was used to doing, you know, problem solving in non-traditional environments, or I was used to looking at problems from 30,000 feet, or I was really in the weeds in my community. But you don't start by saying, hi, I'm a return Peace Corps volunteer. I was in Guatemala for the past two years working on water irrigation systems. And now I really want to join your digital marketing group. I mean, people look at you like you're crazy, right? Instead, it's, hi, I'm really excited about this digital marketing opportunity. This is what I love about the industry and your company. And this is why I want to join. And they say, okay, great. Well, tell me about what you've done. Well, actually, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Guatemala working on water irrigation systems. But the reason that's relevant or the reason I'm sharing that or there was a there was a or actually I did a lot of marketing. It happened to be in Latin America with a water irrigation system. But here's how we marketed it to our community. I mean, you have to make the connect the connective tissue for people. So you yep. start your destination, then you go to your backstory. And, and I call it a backstory and not your background because you are telling a story. You pick and choose what to include. And then you connect the dots for people. You know, if I had started off the call today and you'd, you said, tell me about yourself. And, and I started by saying that, you know, I lead great on the job and I care about developing talent. I could have started off with, um, I graduated from Northwestern University in 1995 with a degree in social <laughs> policy. I went to work in, in, in um, Washington, D.C., waiting for my Peace Corps assignment to come through. I spent two years in Southern Chile, came yeah worked for the Environmental Protection Agency, realized I didn't like it, applied to business school, studied finance, went to work at Goldman Sachs, decided that I didn't like that either, <laughs> then went to a nonprofit, decided that wasn't right either. I mean, and... none of I would have lost you all, right? right? 30 seconds in. So there's, I pick and choose strategically what pieces of my background to include depending on who I'm speaking to. And so that's the, the pitch strategy that I teach. It's, it's three steps, it's destination, backstory, connect the dots, you don't have to memorize anything. It doesn't have to be yeah. canon or inauthentic, but you know your different pieces and then you bring them together to make a compelling pitch. And I believe uh, that it reminds me in part of um, uh, Cynic, Simon Cynic, uh, some of that work with that start with the why, right? Instead of, you know, just the, yeah. So yeah, no, um, I, all great points. Yeah. Excellent. I think that that um, start with why I, I've said often it was, one of the most impactful business books I've read in the past decade, for sure, right? Yeah. It, it really is. It's like, no one cares what, they want to know why. Why yeah. are you interested in this? Why are you excited about this? How are you going to add value? Um, yeah, that's a that's a great connection. That's great. Well, wonderful. Uh, so one of the other, and I think I think it's, I apologize, I think it's this one that's maybe the TEDx one, yeah. the, the why you should stop looking yeah. for work you love, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because when I first read this, this title, I said, there has to be a, wait, there has to be a typo here. Like this is because I would say part of my whole, in my life, I've always tried to, you know, do st something that I'm passionate about that I love, you know, and finding work I love. And, and I've given much career advice, even, you know, talking about and trying to find, how do you identify what you will, you know, be good at and enjoy and, you know, doing assessments and things like that. But so this just kind of like flipped me on the, you know, and I thought, what in the world? And so I listened to it and it was so good. I loved, you know, your point. And, and I think you're not so much saying that you can't like what you do. You, you don't want to do something that you like doing, but it's don't be seeking out that. Like, I, I want to hear you tell a little more about it. Um, but I just, I think it's, it, it's a great, 
it, it's really great. And I'm going to share it with a lot of RPCBs though. So okay. we can talk a little more about that. Yeah. Listen, you know, I say in the TED talk, I remember my dad telling me I can be anything I want to be when I grow up, right? The world was my oyster. I, I had access, I had education, I had means, I had a supportive family. And the problem was I didn't know what the hell I loved. And right. so, you know, when you go searching, Peace Corps was, um, you know, there was, a, there was a huge part of me that recognized I had come from a place of privilege growing up in terms of having a great education and having a, a you know a, a stable family, and I wanted to give back, right? I wanted to change the world. I wanted to give back. Peace Corps was just this huge adventure, and and I was so excited, and I loved the Peace Corps. And I came back, but I decided I, I didn't want to spend the whole of my life traveling. I, I loved international development, but I couldn't figure out how to do it in a way that was going to make sense with my life. And then I went into um, government, and I was frustrated, and I was like, okay, well, government's not it. And then I went to business school and I, and I got hired on Wall Street and I went to Wall Street and I spent four years on Wall Street. I'm like, okay, well, Wall Street's not it. And then I, um, I spent a summer at ExxonMobil in, in a corporate environment and that yeah. wasn't it. Then I worked for a nonprofit. I mean, everywhere I went, I just felt like, what, what is wrong with me? Like, I can't find my thing. I can't excel in a way that I want. And I think people from the outside probably looked at me as successful because I had been at the White House and the EPA and Peace Corps and Goldman, but I hadn't been particularly successful in any of those endeavors in a way for me, which was, I wasn't, um, I wasn't becoming really senior. I wasn't leading people. I wasn't loving what I was doing. And so I, I don't want to say I felt like a failure, but I, I certainly felt like I was missing something. And I hadn't found my thing and I had, and I'd spent a decade chasing it truthfully. Um, and so it's interesting to me when I finally found my thing, it was because someone convinced me to do something I didn't want to do. I mean, I never grew up saying I want to be a CEO of a communication training firm. I mean, I'd rather work at Vogue or like, you know, night, like there are other companies that, you know, I'd rather be at like Google um, than running great on the job. There were things that seemed really exciting to me, but, but, but the thing is, I love what I do today. I am super passionate about it and I'm great at it. And that feels so good, but yet I don't know that I would have gotten there just by continuing to look for what I loved because right. I didn't know. And, and so I think that the advice that, you know, follow your passion is so intimidating because when you have to make money off your passion, it's very different. Right. So there are some people in the world who are lucky, like just genuinely lucky. They know what they want to do and what they want to be. I have three children and my youngest is eight and he will probably be an architect or an engineer. I mean, he spends uh -huh. building and admiring buildings and reading about architects. And he's wow. like, and I think to myself, it's like so weird. It's amazing. But most people aren't like that. And I certainly wasn't. So the idea of the talk is that if you flip this idea of like, of, you know, like relentlessly searching for work you love, as opposed to flipping it and making people love you, of just being amazing at what you do so people see your potential and opportunities come your way. Play to your strengths, figure out how you can make other people's lives better or easier. And the formula that we use at Great on the Job to make people love you, and, and by the way, and I, I mean love, not like, like is, you know, Facebook thumbs up or thumbs down. It's fleeting. Love is trust, respect, and admiration. 
And if you are the young professional who can inspire trust, respect, and admiration from your peers and your colleagues, good stuff is going to happen. Opportunities are going to come your way. Mentors and sponsors will show up in your life. And that's when doors open and you kind of go through them in ways that you never expected and ultimately find work that you love and believe in and is fulfilling and impactful. That is great. Thank you. I, I relate. Those are words to live by. And I, I wrote that acronym down as well when I was uh, watching it, you know, the gift and it's, it's wonderful. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we do want to take some questions from the audience. And uh, so I, I want to spend a little bit of time on that. I realize that time goes so fast and want to respect your, uh, your busy schedule too. Uh, Ryan has a question. Um, how would you recommend a job seeker prepares for answering questions in an interview? Right. You can't prepare for every possible answer. And I don't want to sound like a robot responding with a prepared, like memorized answer. What are your tips on that? Right. Well, okay. So here's the beauty of being a return Peace Corps volunteer. Your arsenal of stories is amazing. No one else has stories like you. And so when you're preparing for an interview, there's a couple of things. Number one, watch the pitch course on LinkedIn. It's free. I, so it, like no benefit to me. I just, I genuinely, the thing is number one is know your pitch know your future and your destination. And when someone says, tell me about yourself, don't start at the beginning. Again, I don't care. No <laughs> offense. Tell me what you want to achieve going forward. Lead with your destination. That's the first thing that is so important to that interview. The second thing is have your anecdotes and stories ready so that you can adapt them to the different questions that come your way. And so I think about a time, I, there, was a, um, there was a time where we had a meeting I lived in Southern Chile in a little town called Curarewe. We had one phone and one road leading in and out of my town. <laughs> okay, so I was in the middle of nowhere and I was working on um, sort of uh, community and economic development programs for the women in my town. And we had a meeting one day all the way out on the Campo and the, the Jeep broke down. So we had no municipal vehicle. I worked for the mayor of my town. I was a municipal management volunteer. So there's no car. And we're going to have to cancel on this meeting. Of course, there's no telephones. You can't tell anyone you're not going to show up. And so well, let's just, let's just ride. Let's just take horses. So we get on horses and we ride to a meeting. Okay. I'm from Chicago. <laughs> this is, I didn't like grow up in Nebraska, but we go to the meeting and we have the meeting and that story. I, so I always remember that story that I wasn't going to take no for an answer. I wasn't going to just cancel on these women and let them down and say, okay, there's no, there's no Jeep or there's no telephone. Let's come up with an alternate solution. <laughs> that anecdote that if someone said to me, tell me about a time that you problem solved, I could use that. Tell me about a time you overcame a challenge. I could use that. Tell me about a time where you disagreed with your colleagues and how did you handle it? None of my colleagues wanted to ride horses out into the compo. They're like, no, we're just not going. <laughs> so the idea is don't anticipate the question. Instead, look at your stories and experience and ask yourself, what could I use this story to talk about? Is this an example of leadership? Is this an example of overcoming adversity? Is yep. this an example of um, facing a challenge head on? Is this, a, is this an example of learning from failure? So yeah. it. don't anticipate the question so much as ask yourself, what stories do I have that I can tell that will be relevant to specific topics? Yep. And that way, then when someone asks you the question, you bring in different answers based on your stories, right? I would have never in a million years when I was in the Peace Corps and I would go to work one day and someone would say to me, Gringa, you were up so late last night. <laughs> okay? 
right? They used to say that to me because if my lights were on, everyone, and I would be so annoyed. I never thought in a million years that five years later, I'd be interviewing Goldman Sachs and I could use that sort of nugget of gold to explain the fact that I was always on and that I was working 24 seven. But you, so look for those, look for those pieces because people are, let me say this, people are not interested in Peace Corps and they are interested, right? They're not interested in it because it doesn't have anything to do with, with what they're doing today. And yet, if you have a story that can illuminate a, a, um, an example of you being a leader or a strategic thinker or someone who can overcome boundaries or challenges, yeah. they're going to love it. Yeah. And, you know, I always think to the RPCVs, the evacuees who were literally uprooted from their countries of service with zero notice, maybe a day, you know, no time to pack, no time to say goodbye, despedidas. I mean, that just like yanked at my heart the whole, you know, that whole uh, that that even happened. But that is a story that can be told in so many ways when you're, you know, making your point and when you're answering those questions. Right. And, and so, so use those Peace Corps stories, but as I often always say um, as well, you don't want to always do Peace Corps because if it's Peace Corps, Peace Corps, Peace Corps, Peace Corps, and it's nothing else that gets a little boring as well. So um, there's that fine line. No question. But, but I think you're right about those evacuees. I mean, that's heartbreaking. Um, yeah. But talk about overcoming adversary and, overcoming adversity, talk about building and maintaining connection. I would imagine that those many of the volunteers stayed in touch with their towns or their communities, or, you know, there's, there's lots of things that um, you're absolutely right, that you can use those as, um, as stories. And the, and the other thing I, I should add to that, I'm actually about to film another course for LinkedIn learning on untransferable oh, okay. skills. Another thing. Right. The whole idea of the Peace Corps is not that you were able to build a water irrigation system in Guatemala with all due respect. Again, no one cares. What did it take to build that system? Did you have to use your persuasion skills, your communication skills, your team building skills? Right. Skills? That's what people want to know. Right. Is you really want to think about your transferable skills and how, uh, you know, when I was interviewing for the consulting firms where I didn't get the job. Nonetheless, I had a good story, which is I am a um, I am a big picture thinker by nature. I really am. I live at thirty thousand feet. And I also became trained as a problem solver in non traditional environments by virtue of working in Curarewe for two years. Like there was no single traditional problem that we solved. Right? There were all the craziest problems you could have never anticipated. So those are the types of things problem solving and big picture strategy. That's what I talked about, and. That was, you know, they didn't care about the scenario, but, but you have to bring it up to that level of what's the transferable skill. Right. No, that's, that's such a good point. I'll be looking for that uh, one. Do you have any idea when it will be released? The, uh, the new LinkedIn learning? Um, I think we're filming it in March. It probably won't be released until June or July, but I can keep you posted. Okay. That would be great. We'll definitely share that with folks. Um, we do have some more questions uh, from the audience. Uh, Sarah has a question uh, on the topic of technology. What is your recommendation for networking during COVID? I'm starting my second semester of graduate school and networking is really important, but it's hard to do virtually with social distancing guidelines and such. Any tips on that? Right. It's a great question. I, I would, let me just start, Sarah, like networking to what end? Let's just be clear and you're welcome to type that into the chat box or not, but think about it, like, what is the point of networking? Are you trying to get a job after graduation? Are you trying to um, get hired as a, you know, research assistant and, and get something published? Um, are you just building your network for the sake of building your network? 
and I'll, and I'll say this, when you are just building your network for the sake of building your network, it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And, and people see mm-hmm. through the idea of, um, you know, typically depending on where you are in your career, I always say networking is really important when you have a job because you want to build allies within your organization and find people who will support you and mentor you and sponsor you. Networking is really important when you're looking for a job um, in terms of um, opening up the sort of the floodgates so people know that you're in the market. I'm working with someone right now who I'm coaching who is about to leave a C-level role in finance and wants to join boards, public boards. Um, but mm-hmm. no one knows that that's what she wants to do. And so I said, this is really sort of like a PR campaign where you can tell people about what types of things that you are looking for and why you're qualified. And, and you know, to the extent that they know opportunities, they can connect you. When we're more junior in our careers, networking is um, about sort of building the people who, building that base of people who know you, trust you, respect you, admire you, and maybe would recommend you for a position or be willing to make an introduction on your behalf. And what I always say about networking, everything I do, when I talked about, you know, making people love you versus finding work you love, it's based on this idea of gift, which is generosity, initiative, forward momentum and transparency. And so when I talk about networking, what I usually say is I usually flip it on its head. Networking isn't about giving, isn't about getting, right? It's not like I need something from you. Networking is about giving. If right. you generous with your network, if you can be posting information on LinkedIn that others might be interested in, if you can pass along an article of interest, if you are someone who's adding value to your community by keeping people posted on what's going on in a certain industry, that's when you, that's how you create social capital. And then only after you've quote given, can you be in a position where you might ask someone for a favor? So I don't like to be in a position where I'm asking anyone for anything before I've added significant value to their lives. Good. So I would start with giving versus taking. The next thing is it's not about quantity, it's quality, right? You know, you don't need to go connect with 500 people on LinkedIn in the, it, it doesn't matter if they're not high quality connections. So go with quality over quantity. Um, and it really is about sort of, you know, in terms of staying in touch, I think the question was technology. Right now, LinkedIn is the place to network from a business perspective, right? I mean, Instagram, there's a lot of small businesses on there and, and people are living their best social lives and, you know, doing fabulous things and looking beautiful on Instagram. And a lot of small businesses are on there. But from a from a bigger organization, corporate perspective, LinkedIn is the place to be. Yeah. And so, so what I would say is if you're looking to ways to um, leverage technology now, become more active on LinkedIn, follow thought leaders who you find interesting, follow organizations that are interesting to you so that you can have more information coming into you. And then when you see interesting information, repost it, share it with your opinion, tag people to let them know that you're thinking of them. I mean, that's your best tool for right now. Um, In terms of, you know, asking someone for a virtual coffee chat, that's totally appropriate if you take a minimal amount of time for someone and you have a reason to do it. Saying to someone, I'd love to have, you know, an informational interview with you or a virtual coffee chat, if you don't have an agenda, is really annoying people. Uh waste someone's time. But if you say, I'd love to get five minutes of your time because I'd love to know blank or talk about this, then someone may be willing to give you their time. So be thoughtful about what is networking has to be a means to an end. What's the end, right? It's not just networking for networking's sake. Um, And it certainly is harder in this virtual world. And yet on some level, it's also easier because you don't now have to be 
in the same city or town as someone, it's expected sure. that everyone's virtual. So we've taken it off the table that if there's someone you want to connect with in California right now and you're in New York, you can act, there's no expectation of, well, maybe one day, you know, I'll be in town and we'll have lunch. Right. Now it's, you know what? I would love to pick your brain for 10 minutes on how you broke into the industry if you have a moment to share. And in and then the last piece is, and in exchange, here's what I'd be happy to do for you right? Pay it forward. In exchange, if there's someone you'd like me to speak to about something, or if I can ever return the favor, always think about being generous and paying it forward. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We have another question actually from the audience from uh, Mike, who is a mid-career professional and Peace Corps was 15 you know, years ago uh, for him. And his question is, I'm trying to transition careers into an entirely new area. I have professional skills and experience, but generally have no proof of knowledge in the new area I'm trying to go into. What advice do you have for breaking into a whole new industry and professional role? You know, it is it is leading with your destination. I don't I don't mean to be a broken record. And if you want to tell me what the industry is, I'm happy to hear it. You have to sell yourself on your transferable skills. And, and the thing about the industry, if you're breaking into a new industry, in an ideal world, you do the same role you did in a different industry, right? It's always easier if you can go in the same industry with a different role or a different industry with the same role. That's the easiest thing to do. I didn't do that, to be clear, right? Thank <laughs> no experience. Um, but then you've got to sell yourself on transferable skills and talk about the fact that you are a quick learner or you are a creative thinker or you are a trend spotter or you are just analytical to your core and this comes naturally to you. So I'm, I, I really do say to people, um, I do pitching yourself at Harvard Business School every year, right? So you've got these smarty pants, you know, young people who are brilliant and 90% of them are switching careers, maybe 95%. And so they have no quote relevant experience and yet they got themselves into Harvard B School. So they're, they're, pretty smart and accomplished, but sure. people are do, making career switches all the time. And the truth is most businesses will say to you, we can teach you the skills, right? We can teach you the skills. We're not hiring for what you can do today. We're hiring for your future potential and your leadership potential. So whether it is your ability to, um, to lead teams, to think differently, to um, question orthodoxy, like whatever it is that you bring to the table, you have to go into that new industry and 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 be. And by the way, like don't try and hide. You lead with why you want to do it and why you'd be great. And then you talk about when you go into your destination the fact that you haven't done it before, but here's why you can do it. Here's why you're qualified based on your transferable skills. That's great. And Mike did share actually a follow-up um, to your question for him. Uh, the area is agriculture, the, the sector, and he's currently a renewable energy attorney, but does not want to be an attorney again. So listen, but if you're if you're a renewable energy attorney, it's not that far off from like you probably have like agriculture is not the craziest thing in the world. And if you could if you could do the job that you did, I don't know what you want to do in agriculture, but I don't think that's such a crazy leap. I think that people would be very excited to have someone with your background and skills and expertise joining their agriculture organization. And so you have to, you have to talk about the why and the how you're going to add value, the why you want to do it, the how you're going to add value, what's motivating you. Because here's what I say about um, hiring. The truth is the reason you don't get the job is not because you don't have the skills. The reason you don't get the job is because people don't believe your story. 
they don't believe that, you know, they're going to, if someone sits there and says, you know what, listen, he's going to go back to being an attorney in a year. I'm not going to take a risk. That's the bigger challenge. Right. If you're right. Not that you're not smart and you can't learn the business. It's that we don't believe your story because so many people have the skills. That's the truth. But you know, it really is like, do you really want this job? Why do you want it? And, and are you going to um, be great at it? But like, are you, are you just trying to get any job or do you really want this one? Right. Great. Wonderful. Goodness. We have lots of, uh, lots of questions from the audience. This is wonderful. And you're doing a great job of, of answering them. Uh, Tracy has a, a question on a different um area it's more with interviewing and um she asks what can i potentially what can i ask a potential supervisor assuming they're in the interview panel to try to see if there are maybe red flags to working with that person and and she's asking this to go along with the lines that people don't leave organizations they leave supervisors oftentimes you know, I don't know that your job in the interview is to find red flags. I, it um, on some level, right? I think that you want to get what I would. You want to get the job, and then you want to determine whether or not you want it. You want to be Good in the point. You want to be the one to make the decision, not have them make the decision. So I don't ever want you in an interviewing being adversarial. No one's going to show you their dirty laundry in an interview. No one's going to tell you they're a terrible boss. Um, there are signs, right? If there's been a lot of turnover, um, you can ask people about their management style. Like right. what would be the, you know, what would be the best way that we can work together or who are, you know, the, the last person you hired for this role, what made them successful? What were some of the challenges? You can get an idea from that, but that's not really the time. Um, looking for red flags, once you've got an offer, then you can start talking to people in the organization or talk about their management style. You can ask questions about management style. And if someone says to you, no one's going to say I'm a micromanager and I'm going to be, you know, riding you really hard and making sure everything is great. But someone may say, I love to, you know, I want to meet and talk every day. And that makes you feel like, oh God, that's too much. Um, but I, I think that diligence sort of comes after the interview process to be, to be truthful. Sure. That's really good. Um, good point. You, you, your, your role in the interview is to convince them that you're the right person. Once you get it, then you have so much more leverage to even when it comes to salary negotiation and all of those things, once they want you, you know, it's a lot better. You've got a lot better probability to, to get what you want as well. So great. Um, we are getting close to the hour here and uh, looking at our, let's see, we have, uh, we do have one other question um, from, uh, one of our participants, one of our listeners um, about actually this one is about um, it's it's uh, what to do in, with a toxic work environment like um, and, and this person shares an incident uh, from Peace Corps where a country director uh, basically gaslit her and then refused to work on a project, refused to give you know recommendations. Is there any way to rebuild or build relationships in a toxic work environment or when your personalities just don't get along? It's a tough um, one. Yeah, that is a tough one. You know, listen, I, I don't think there may be a way to rebuild a toxic relationship. I don't think there's a reason to. Um, yeah. You know, we are in, in the same way we, you know, vote with our feet. If you are in an environment with a toxic boss, my advice is, is to get out, to find other to either find other people within the organization who you can work with and find support from. But if all signs point to a, a, a boss who is not going to give you credit, who's not going to um, support you, who's not going to advocate for you, what I always say is we can't change other people's behaviors. And I don't mean to be defeatist, but Good I do point. think there's something really... Um, 
deflating about beating your head against the wall. You know, they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting a different outcome. Mm-hmm. And so if you have data and proof that you have a boss who the two of you just aren't going to, to work. Um, I think that there's probably a point where you cut your losses and you say, you know what, this isn't good for my mental health. This isn't good for my well-being. This isn't good for my professional career. And you've got to take it upon you to find people who are going to support you and advocate for you and promote you. And in some cases, it may be just attaching your star to someone else's ship in the organization, you know, slowly getting some exposure and access to other parts of your of your group. In some cases, it may be recognizing that there is just no opportunity for me here and I need to go somewhere else. And so I don't I don't focus so much on repairing toxic relationships. I mean, toxicity in the workplace like that is not that is not okay on any level. And so if you're not in a position of power to change it, I say get out. Great. Wonderful. That's very good. I think those are some good final words of advice um, regarding that. Uh, And I want to uh, respect your time as well and and your commitment here. I'm wondering uh, if you have any parting words of advice for our RPCV listeners before we we wrap this up. It is never a straight line journey. Um, Don't expect that everything has to make perfect sense and that you're going to, you know, go lockstep in, in the way that you thought. The beauty of careers is that they can take lots of detours Um, hopefully what I always say is you learn from everything you do. I don't regret any of my long and winding road to get me to where I am today. I think it just makes me a more, um, interesting and compelling professional. You know, if you take the wrong job, it's okay. You can get a new one. If you've got a bad boss, you can move on. I, I want people to recognize that everything is fixable. Nothing has to be permanent. And if you're learning and growing, that is the most important thing. I I wrote an article for Harvard Business Review once called Learn, Earn, Contribute. Ask where you are in your life. Are you in a learn mode? Are you in an earn mode? Are you in a contribute mode? You can't usually do all three at once and that's okay. I contributed in the Peace Corps more than I have in a long time. I, I find other ways to give back and contribute right now, I, but I have a young family and I'm earning and right. Um, and then when I stop learning, I, I think, okay, well now I need to get myself out of my comfort zone. Um, but it doesn't have to be perfect. It won't be perfect. As long as you're um, taking in information along the way, figuring out about what, what you're good at, what you love, how you want to contribute, you'll, you'll get there eventually. Um, but have patience and don't expect it always to be perfect because it, it isn't for anyone. Wonderful. Thank you, Jody. And with that, uh, we will bring this episode to a close. Thank you so much for joining us. First, Jody, for you know sharing your time and expertise with your family of RPCVs. And also thanks for the listeners who've joined in and, uh, you know, tuned in to listen to what you've had to say. Um, And we are always looking for great future, you know, topics for future podcasts. So if you do have some suggestions, please feel free to reach out. You can simply email us at careers at peacecoreconnect.org subject line podcast topic. And we'll do our very best to uh, work that into a future episode. Thanks again, Jody and everyone and make it a great day. Bye.